All right, if you have a Bible this morning, turn to Acts 25. We're going to forego the reading of the text this morning as we typically do, uh, just because we've got a lot of ground to cover here. We're going to be in Acts 25 and 26 this morning. These two chapters really are one unit, and so it, it doesn't make sense to kind of break them into two. And so uh, we're going to walk through this entire passage And uh, I'll make some comments along the way, but we'll try to cover these two chapters this morning. So Acts 25 uh, is where we'll begin. We're coming to the end of our series through the book of Acts. Just a couple of chapters left after this morning. Uh, We've been studying here the final years of Paul's ministry, really the final years of Paul's life. We've seen in the previous chapters that Paul was arrested uh, by an angry mob in Jerusalem, and now the Jewish leaders, especially the Sadducees, Uh, the high priest and some of the ruling class of Jerusalem, uh, they are trying to have Paul killed. They tried first through the legal means of bringing official charges against Paul uh, before the tribune, and then last week, as we saw before Governor Felix. Uh, But they don't really have any evidence against Paul. And so, you know, Paul hasn't committed any crimes. He hasn't actually done anything wrong, uh, worthy of, of punishment. And so those charges are going nowhere. Then they tried to ambush Paul and kill him. We saw that a few chapters ago. They had this whole plot set up that 40 men were going to attack Paul as he was being uh, transferred as a prisoner from uh, Jerusalem in the prison to the court. Uh, But Paul's nephew uh, happened to overhear this plot. He comes and reports it, and they end up getting Paul to safety. And so now Paul is being kept in Caesarea, where he is being held as a prisoner. Uh, Felix, the governor of the province, he heard Paul's case last week. We saw that. Uh, He knows Paul was innocent, and yet in order to appease the Jewish leaders and hoping to get a bribe from Paul, uh, he kept him locked up for two years. Now as we come to chapter 25, those two years have ended. Felix is no longer the governor. He's been replaced by a new governor named Festus. And so Festus has just been appointed to this position. He's very new to this role. And so the text begins with Festus heading down to Jerusalem, to meet the Jewish leadership. Obviously, if he's going to be an effective governor over this province of Israel, he's going to need to be on uh, good terms, have a good working relationship with the leaders in Jerusalem. And so he heads down in verse 1, which says, After three days, Festus arrived in the province. Uh, He went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So he's headed down there uh, to speak with the Jewish leaders. Verse 2, The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So right away, all that the chief priests and leaders of Jerusalem want to talk about is Paul, uh, which tells you something about just the deep hatred uh, that they had for Paul. Paul had been locked up for two years, 55 miles away from them. Uh, Think about how long two years is. They hadn't seen Paul. Paul hadn't been causing any trouble for them. And yet they were so, uh, their their hatred of him was so deep that they hadn't forgotten about him. And so as soon as a new governor is put in place, this is their very first move. They lay out the charges against Paul and they ask Festus uh, to let Paul come back to Jerusalem for a trial, which of course is uh, not really honest. Uh, What they're really after is getting that transfer back to Jerusalem so they can ambush him. They still have that uh, in their minds. The the legal case is so weak uh, that they're just going to take matters into their own hands. Uh, But Paul is in safety in Caesarea. He's being protected there, and so they they can't get to him as long as he's being held there. Uh, Festus responds to this request in verse 4, saying that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. 
And if there is anything wrong about this man, let them bring charges against him. So Festus sets up another trial with these Jewish leaders. Basically, uh, today we're going to repeat what we saw last week. Uh, The Jewish leadership are going to bring charges against Paul, and Paul is going to defend himself, except this time with a new governor. So he's got a new person uh, to adjudicate this case. Verse 6, After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So here comes the trial, verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Uh, We know what these charges are at this point. We've seen them brought in the past. Uh, They've been accusing Paul, first of all, of being an insurrectionist leader, stirring up a mob, trying to overthrow uh, the Roman government. Basically, they're trying to paint uh, Paul as a threat to Rome so that the Roman government will step in and kill him. Secondly, they accuse Paul of defiling the temple, bringing Gentiles uh, into the inner parts of the temple where they were not allowed, or as we saw last week, they kind of tweaked that charge and said, well, he tried to. Uh, He didn't quite get them in there, but, but he was attempting Uh, to bring Gentiles into the temple. Thirdly, they accused Paul of being a false teacher, spreading heresy, leading people away from the Jewish faith. And so verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So uh, Luke probably doesn't give us there everything that Paul said, uh, but this was the gist of his defense. He flatly denies all three charges. He says, "I, I have not done these things Uh, at all. Verse 9, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. So he's new to this position, right? He's trying to earn favor with these leaders that have a lot of influence over the populace. And so he wants to do something for them. So he says to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Uh, He's realizing probably at this point Festus is that this is more of a theological dispute uh, than a real legal issue. It's outside of his area of expertise. We'll see more about that as we walk through the text, uh, Festus doesn't know much about Judaism. Uh, he doesn't know much about the Hebrew scriptures. He's new probably to Israel. Rome probably has grabbed him and, and put him in position there. And so this is all uh, very unfamiliar to him. He's not sure what all of this is about. So he figures maybe Paul will be okay with being tried in Jerusalem. And then Festus can just wash his hands of it, be done. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is over with. Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the right to object uh, to his trial being moved. And that's exactly what he does. In fact, He takes it a step further. Verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He's saying that that they're accusing me of committing crimes against Rome. Therefore, uh, I should stand trial before the Roman government, not before the Jews. He says to the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So this was an official appeal of Paul, a formal appeal that he makes to be transferred to Rome and to stand trial before Caesar. Again, this was a right of, of his as a Roman citizen. Paul knows that if they hand him over to the Jews, they're going to kill him. Uh, And I imagine he's sick of being in Caesarea, kind of wasting time in prison there, uh, not getting any sort of fair trial. So Paul makes a formal appeal to be brought before the emperor of Rome. And that is the end of this trial. His appeal kind of shuts the whole thing down. 
And so now he's going to be transferred uh, to Rome. But for a while, he's being kept in custody, awaiting uh, his travel. Verse 13 says, When some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Uh, Agrippa was very much like Festus. He was a, a leader over a province. King is maybe a, a bit of an exaggeration, more like a governor. He was in charge of a particular uh, area of Israel as well. Uh, he was more experienced than Festus. He had been there for a while, and so he comes to greet the newcomer uh, to his new position. And unlike Festus, Agrippa was an expert in Jewish law. Agrippa was himself a Jew, and he had been a governor over the province in Israel for several years at this point. And so he was familiar with the customs, uh, the teachings, the practices of the Jews. And so because of Agrippa's knowledge, Festus decides to ask him for help with Paul's case. Okay, so Festus doesn't really understand what's going on here. He hears these charges. He knows it's some sort of theological debate between the Jews and Paul, but he's not really familiar with it. And so he brings in Agrippa, kind of the Jewish expert, to come and uh, basically to help him figure out what he needs to write to the emperor. Festus needs to provide a a written report of the the charges against Paul, uh, the court proceedings so far, what this is all about, so that when the emperor gets Paul, uh, he kind of knows, you know, what's going on here and what what the case is. And Festus doesn't really understand the charges enough to know what to write, and so he he wants to bring Agrippa uh, in on this for help. Verse fourteen says, after they stayed there many days, uh, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, "There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him." I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So Festus kind of thought, This was a criminal case that Paul had maybe killed someone or done something against Rome, uh, some sort of legal issue. Uh, Rather, verse 19, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had uh, appealed to be kept in custody, For the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, this is Agrippa's sister, uh, they came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So now Paul is going to get a chance to speak before Festus and Agrippa. This isn't really a trial per se. Uh, They're trying to figure out what the charges are in order to write something to the emperor uh, to let him know what this is all about. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as, he appealed, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, 
I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Uh, Paul is no doubt tired at this point of trying to explain what this is all about and what, what he actually believed to people who had no understanding of Jewish theology. And so they didn't know how to handle his case. But now Paul feels like he's got a good opportunity with Agrippa. Uh, finally, somebody who will understand uh, the Jewish scriptures, the teachings of the Jews, and, and what this is all about. Verse 4, Paul begins, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And so Paul starts off by saying, I, I grew up a very strict Jew, uh, born and raised a Pharisee, holding to all the traditions, the laws of my ancestors. And so I, I was one of them. Verse 6, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am being accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so here he explains to Agrippa what this is all about. The hope of Israel, of course, refers to uh, the Messiah, the coming king who was to rule over Israel, restore justice and peace. And Paul sees that as Jesus. And, of course, this hope has been further explained by Paul in previous trials as the resurrection. The fact that Jesus, whom they killed, is risen from the dead, that he's establishing his kingdom. Uh, that is what this is all about. And so Paul says, I, I haven't abandoned my Jewish faith. Rather, I, I follow Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And yet the Jews are attacking me for believing this. Verse 9, Paul continues, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now he's getting into his previous life before his salvation, uh, how he was zealous uh, to stamp out the church, how he hated Christianity. Verse 10 says, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And by the way, that verse right there seems to indicate that Paul uh, very likely was a member of the Sanhedrin himself uh, before he became a Christian. Paul locked up Christians in prison. Uh, he cast his vote in favor of their execution, meaning he's, he's likely one of those uh, 70 Jewish leaders who made up the court of the Sanhedrin. And so Paul is saying, I, I was once one of them. That, that's the point he's making to Agrippa. I was a Pharisee, zealous for the law and the Jewish faith. And nobody opposed Christianity more than me. He says, I was so dedicated to stamping out Jesus and all of his following that I would even travel. I would go around arresting Christians, bring them to Jerusalem, voting in favor of their death. And then verse 11, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In connection, I'm sorry, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of chief priests. So 
Paul was headed to Damascus to arrest more Christians, uh, to bring them back to Jerusalem to be put to death. And then suddenly something happened. Verse 13. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, that to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Uh, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So that is Paul's explanation of his own testimony, uh, what change Christ has made in his life. Paul was once a zealous Jew, just like these Jewish leaders who are now trying to kill him. He opposed Christ and his followers until he saw Jesus alive. And so he has come to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. And this belief of Paul is why the Jews are so upset with him. Because Paul, in a sense, kind of betrayed them. Uh, he was on his way to go attack the Christian church, and then he ends up joining it. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So basically, Paul says, to, in answer to his question, yes, I would love to persuade you to be a Christian. I would love for everyone around here, everyone in this court, uh, to become convinced in the power of Christ and in his resurrection. Verse 30, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Uh, so they might have thought he was crazy, but they knew that he was innocent, or that he hadn't done anything uh, criminal. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
Now, next week, we're going to start chapter 27, where Paul is uh, headed to the city of Rome, and there's a storm uh, and a shipwreck, and Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake. All sorts of crazy stuff happens uh, on his way there. But this sets the direction uh, for the next uh, two chapters of the book. Paul has appealed to Caesar, and so he's going to be sent there uh, to the city of Rome to stand trial before the emperor. A couple of thoughts before we close this morning. First of all, we see from the text today, and really all throughout the book of Acts, Paul's passion to spread the gospel to anyone who would be willing to listen. Even when he's here on trial for his life, he seems less concerned about defending himself and more concerned about the souls of the people in the room. He's giving a very short defense of himself, saying to Agrippa, I haven't done anything against Rome or against the Jews or against the temple. Uh, Now let me tell you about Jesus, (laughs) Uh, why I became a follower of his and why you should be too. Uh, This was Paul's heart for the lost. Even those who were responsible for his imprisonment, like Felix, a man who mistreated him for two years, kept him locked up unjustly. Paul shared Christ with him repeatedly. Excuse me, I think this is one of the main reasons that Luke records uh, four trials of the Apostle Paul. You might think as we've been reading these last couple of chapters, uh, boy, this is getting really repetitive. Uh, Seems unnecessary for Luke to just Keep telling us the charges against Paul and Paul's defense and the charges against him and Paul's defense. Uh, Why are all of these trials recorded in the book of Acts? I think one reason is that Luke is trying to show us Paul is an example of how we ought to respond to persecution by boldly standing for Christ and sharing the gospel with anyone who will listen. When Paul finally gets to Rome in chapter 28, he spends two years there in sort of a house arrest situation. He has to have soldiers guarding him at all times to make sure he doesn't escape. Uh, skipping down to chapter 28, verse 16, we read, when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay, by, to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And instead of feeling sorry for himself and living out the rest of his days in misery, like most of us would probably be tempted to, Paul looks around him and he sees opportunities for sharing Christ with others. Verse 30 of the same chapter says he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now most of us would think being locked inside of a house, not being allowed to leave would be a hindrance to preaching the gospel. But that wasn't Paul's perspective. Paul looked around at his situation and he saw opportunities even there. I don't know how he spread the word, but somehow uh, from inside that house where he was locked for those two years, he invited people uh, to come and to visit him so that he could tell them about Christ. Uh, He turned the the little prison that he was confined to into a sort of church where he would preach to anyone who would come and listen. And of course, I think there was always at least one soldier there guarding Paul as well, and I doubt that any of them uh, guarded Paul for a minute without him telling them about Christ as well. Every time a new soldier was brought in to guard Paul, no doubt they heard about Jesus. In fact, over in Philippians 4, uh, Paul is writing from Rome in prison here, and he says this little comment at the end of the letter of the Philippians. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Well, how did that happen? Uh, Paul's been busy, even here in this house arrest situation, busy about the work of the kingdom. There he was sharing Christ with the soldiers, with members of Caesar's household, preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. Lastly, I want to point out just uh, six quick things 
that we learn about genuine conversion to Christ from Paul's speech here. One of the main, I think, takeaways of our study of Luke and also of Acts these last few years has just been clarity on the gospel. What does it mean for someone to be saved, to be truly saved? Uh, Often we kind of think of salvation as just, you know, I I believe in Jesus and so now I'm a Christian. Uh, But as we've seen, there's a much more robust view of conversion that we see in Luke and in Acts. Uh, Acts 24, verse 14. First of all, conversion begins with conviction of sin. It says, When he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, Goads were used to prod an ox along. Okay, So it was like a sharpened stick that they would kind of poke the ox with as he was plowing a field to make sure he kept moving in the right direction and all that. Uh, God had been poking at Paul's heart. Paul had experienced conviction that he was wrestling with. I think the death of Stephen was one such poke uh, of God. And so he had been kicking against that conviction. But conversion begins with conviction of sin. Number two, conversion can only happen when we come to believe in Jesus. Paul says to Christ on that occasion, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said, Nobody can come to the Father except through me. And so salvation is only found in Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. Number three, our conversion is first of all the work of God. Jesus told Paul that he was sending him to, uh, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Uh, So through the work of the Holy Spirit in connection with Paul's preaching, people all over Israel and Syria and Turkey and even Greece, as we've seen in Acts, they had their eyes opened. God used Paul's witness throughout the book of Acts. And certainly there's a human element to that. I believe we have to choose uh, to believe in Christ, to follow Jesus. But there's also a divine element. God has to open our blind eyes so that we can see the gospel, so that we can believe it, so that we can understand it. As Jesus said, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And so if you came to believe in Christ, if you committed your life uh, to Jesus at some point in your life, Uh, That was because ultimately of God's work in your heart uh, to open your mind, to open the eyes of your spiritual understanding. Number four, conversion to Christ includes repentance. Again, a main theme that we've seen uh, both in Luke and Acts. Verse 18 describes conversion to Christ as turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to serve God. Always Paul's preaching included repentance from sin. It's not merely enough to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Satan believes that. Uh, Conversion is more than just belief. It's committing your life to follow Christ. He becomes your Lord. You become his servant. We see that, of course, even there in the the account of Paul's own conversion. What are his first words? Who are you, Lord? He recognized right away that the one who was appearing to him was someone that he was now a servant of. Number five. Conversion results in the forgiveness of our sins and a place among God's people. I think often we tend to think of conversion as simply being saved from hell, although that's true. There's a lot more to it than that. It's being saved ultimately from sin. You see again in verse 18, it says, Those who turn to God from their sins are forgiven of all their sin, and they receive a place among the sanctified 
in Christ, meaning they become a part of the eternal kingdom of God, those who are following Christ as king of their lives. Number six, lastly, conversion is demonstrated by a life of obedience. Verse 19, Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Works always follow genuine conversion to Christ. Now, we see that in Paul's own conversion, of course. He goes from being radically opposed to Jesus and his church, uh, and then immediately he asks Christ on this Damascus road, what will you have me to do? And then he spends the rest of his life obeying what the Lord told him. We also see this in his preaching. Paul told people, repent, turn to God, and then perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. Uh, Talk is cheap. (laughs) In other words, uh, saying you're a Christian isn't enough. True Christians are those who obey their Lord. We're going to pick up in chapter 27 next time. We're very quickly wrapping up our study of the book of Acts. And uh, next we're going to follow Paul as he's on a ship headed to the city of Rome. We'll see that next time. Let's pray.